0: welcome to another talking with on ambri i'm so glad you're here if you have ever been told that you're less than that you couldn't if you haven't realized your power and your greatness you've come to the right place sit back relax take in all the inspiration as we talk to some pretty powerful people enjoy to have happened but we are here today talking with Suzette Maganya. rhymes with lasagna rhymes with lasagna <laughs> and she is a therapist mm-hmm. and she's Christian based mm-hmm. she's also a creator and co-host of a podcast the live or line desire
1: desire line
0: desire line yep. Flip that. Flip that. Um, all of those, um, if you're interested in our podcast, finding out more about Suzette and the event page is all of her links. I'm very excited to be talking with you. I'm finally on a couch with a therapist. And if you hear that <laughs> sigh of relief across the world, oh, she's finally getting what she needs. <laughs> <laughs> she's finally doing it. Um, but this is for you guys. And um, what I want to start with is... How you came to choose this career, and especially um, not just being a therapist, but being a therapist that practices from a Christian foundation,
1: Okay, what led you to that? (laughs) Um, So I grew up going to a church, grew grew up going to a Baptist church um, in Northern California. I've just learned it's a mainline uh, American Baptist church is the denomination, which is a whole other...
0: What's There's
1: a mainline? A million different kinds of Baptist churches. <laughs>
0: right. I was raised Southern Baptist. What's mainline?
1: Mainline means, um, I'm going to get this answer wrong, but it means something like like uh, Lutheran is a mainline church, Presbyterian is a mainline church, um, so they're big denominations, but it's it's not evangelical. I think oh, it's okay. what a mainline means. And I think Southern Baptist is evangelical. Very. We should talk about it okay <laughs> um, well, yes absolutely we should <laughs> <laughs> um so I grew up in uh, I grew up in church and so kind of faith has been always part of my life so <clears throat> when I so in the 90s which is when I was in high school um there was a big divide between psychology and faith I think and um, kind of the impression is like if you if you have mental illness then you don't have enough faith is, some, is a part of some people's belief system. And so um, my dad really wanted me to, to go to a Christian university um, if I was gonna major in psychology, which I fell in love with psychology when I was a senior in high school. Um, just fell in love. And like, when you're a psychology per- you just fall in love with it. Like the first class you take or the first time you learn about psychology, you just fall in love. So um, I fell in love with psychology and I knew I was gonna major in it and I didn't know if I wanted to be a therapist yet, but I knew I wanted to major in psychology. And then when I was in undergrad, so I did go to a Christian school, I went to Azusa Pacific, um, and in Azusa in California, just like San Gabriel Valley, Los Angeles. Um, So when I was in undergrad, majored in psychology, my plan was to be an industrial organizational psychologist, which still sounds like a really cool job to me. And that kind of helps people in corporate environments to be more healthy. Have more healthy like work relationships like my best example is like if you're an extrovert they put you in the front where you're talking to people and if right. you're an introvert they put you in the back where you're away from people kind right. of like that dynamic um if you're like a heavy feeler you don't you know you're going to be in a room where like your emotions are an important part of your job and where they've val- they're valuable you know um okay so i so i was having a conversation with one of my friends we were talking about a relationship or something in my dorm room And the conversation was like three hours long. And I remember looking at the clock and then getting back in the conversation and then what felt like a few minutes to me looking back at the clock and it had been like a few hours, not a few minutes. Mm -hmm. And I realized like any job where you, where time goes by so fast Mm -hmm. is the job for you, right? It's kind of that same idea of like, do the same thing you would do for work that you would do for free and then you're going to have a content like work life. That was my experience with talking to people about feelings and relationships and engaging in those conversations. And I don't have a typical therapist personality, I think. Um, what is the
0: typical therapist personality? I
1: think it's like, I don't know if this is true, but my impression is it's that someone that's very patient and mm-hmm. very like, is comfortable with silence and comfortable with um, letting the client fill in the gap of what they want to say. And my my kind of natural personality is very big sisterly like um, I'm very nurturing mm-hmm. but I'm not very naturally empathetic and um, so I've had to learn that as a skill and I definitely don't need any space in any conversations like I will <laughs> fill in all the space with my own words <laughs> and when I first became a therapist I really wanted to cheer everybody up right. which is so not what you should do.
0: <laughs> it seems like it's, kind it's of not just do. about cheering up
1: <laughs> yeah like your goal is for people to be more content Not like happier when they leave the room. (laughs) You want them to be kind of more generally content. And so by nature, I just like to cheer people up.
0: So with you having this opinion of what a natural or textbook therapist is and you differing from that, did you ever um, struggle with reconciling what you bring to the table versus what your idea of what a therapist should be?
1: Yeah, I think part of this, part of the development of your like therapeutic skill, because so I've been practicing for ten years mm-hmm. and I've been licensed for six. It takes um, like about four years. It took four years for me to get licensed. I don't know if that's true for everybody, but and I'm a marriage and family therapist. so I have a master's degree and then moved into licensure. Um, so for me, I <laughs> like I was in, gr- in grad school and kind of looked around me because we do a lot of like processing of our own emotions in grad school. And I realized like everyone seems really good at empathy and I'm just not very naturally empathetic. And that was like my first sign of like, oh, okay, I may not be good at this. And being like a faith-based person, I began to pray like um, first praying my emotions, like God, I don't think you're gonna be good at being the empathy. I think I need to like build the skill. And um, I remember talking to my now husband about it and he, and he was like, it's something that you can learn to do. And it was like, it's really empathy is definitely a skill that you can learn. Not something that you're That's given hard-wired. naturally. Yeah. And um and I think everybody that is, even people that are naturally empathetic, I think that you have to develop the skill to not be too almost too empathetic or pour too much of yourself into it. So a lot of therapists that I know that I think have that typical personality, they pour kind of too much of their heart and soul into the work and then there's not a lot left over for their own right relationships, their own family. They're depleted. Yeah. And me being kind of naturally selfish, um, not if it's true, but kind of, um, I am less depleted when I leave. There's there's ways for sure where I am, but
0: do you find that that works a little bit in your strength because you're not so depleted that you're able to show up for every single patient that you have sure. ready, and you can yeah. be that energizing force for them?
1: Yeah, I th- one thing I've found in the last couple of years that's for sure true, and and. When, before my skill was developed, um, which I'm not as good as I hope to be in 10 years, but, you know, I'm better than I was 10 years ago. <laughs> um, but before my skill was developed, I it took a lot of practice and a lot of kind of centering work for me to be that person in the room for them. Um, and now it's more of like a skill that I've learned over time. It's right. kind of a well-worn When I think about like neuroscience, we can talk about this if you want, like um, what I've studied with neuroscience, the more we practice something, the more it becomes kind of a well worn path in our mind. Mm -hmm. This is kind of the foundation of my podcast is like it goes from, you know, you're like hiking through not a path (laughs) to like developing a path to developing a street to paving the road to it becoming a freeway, right? Right. Um, Like I always think of the 101 in LA, like how it started as just a trail and now it's a huge freeway that goes all up and down our state. And, um, and that's true for any skill we build, like you, it's a well, it becomes a well-worn path. So I think for me and doing therapy for 10 years, it feels like well-worn path. Like it feels like, okay, I've done this for so long. The easiest part of my job is now sitting with clients Right. and it's not that it's easy. It's just well-worn. It's just something that I've done for long enough for it to feel normal, you know? Right. So I can flip into... So it used to be it used to be like once my skill was kind of new, I I would notice when I was tired, I would like move back into cheerleading mode. So after I'd already learned not to do that, if I was tired or sick, I would start cheerleading my clients. And that would be a sign to me that like I'm not on my game because I'm not able to sit with them in their pain. Um, but now like it, t- I, I have to be pretty sick <laughs> to not cheerlead them, which is nice. it's nice that things develop over time and the thing that was hard a few years ago isn't hard now isn't that a lovely part about getting older that
0: it's yeah i love that it takes a lot of practice
1: takes a lot of practice and it it's nice i think i'm in the place with my career now where it feels nice to have put in all this effort Mm -hmm. and then to feel settled enough you know i love that to feel comfortable yeah and i It'll change. You're, you're in the groove. I'm in a groove, yeah. What is
0: the one of the biggest skills that you're learning right now in your career?
1: Um, oh, so one thing that I'm learning is how to say no. I think that's kind of um, not creative enough. <laughs> but I'm learning now how to say no to things and, and how to set better boundaries, I think, professionally mm-hmm. and personally um, because it takes so much out of me. Let my job take it doesn't take a lot of like I don't leave tired in a in a normal sense that I think you feel tired after work. I usually leave pretty energized. But I leave there's a part of my emotion that I it's hard for me to be empathetic outside of my job now. Right. And it's hard for me so like there it's kinda like my heart's a little tired at the end of my session.
0: How do you re energize?
1: resting. Can we tell them we're neighbors? yes okay. Jacqueline and I are neighbours. We are neighbors. We share a driveway. Yes, we do. We share a driveway, we share yards, we are neighbors. Um, And so Jacqueline, my husband and I kind of hang out with our doors open and stuff. So you see us like we sit down, TV, feet up, laughing at stupid things. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I think that there's a lot of like silent rest that happens, Mm -hmm. which is a skill that I had to learn. And um, so a lot of times my job doesn't start till noon or later and I work late. And my husband's a school teacher, so he leaves at like six thirty in the morning. Um, so we, so I have the whole morning to myself, and the morning kind of feels like what evenings feel like to other people. I think that have nine to five jobs. So I wake up and I am. This is a good skill now. I don't turn on TV. I don't turn on anything. I sit in silence in the morning, mm-hmm. and then I have this ugly chair that my pug has completely destroyed. <laughs> And it's right in front of our, like, windows in our house. And um, there's, like, all these cool windows. And I have all these books and notebooks and stickers and markers. And I, like, I have, a like, a spiritual practice that I do in the morning Um, that is, you know, it's Bible-centered and prayer-centered because I'm faith-based. And I, like, actually copy a chapter of the Bible into my notebook. Right. Um... Like, every morning. And I, because I can't just read it, because it wouldn't, my brain wouldn't settle on it very well, so I started writing the Bible a few years ago. When, when we moved into this place, so like, three and a half years ago, I think. I started copying the Bible, and, um, and it brings me a different kind of understanding, and it's actually like a meditative practice. That's different than just reading it.
0: Does that and, s- sounds weird, huh? No, it doesn't sound weird because I'm a writer too. I, I have to I write that. things out. Yep. And I have to be able to write it and then read it to mm-hmm. fully process it. So that's not weird at all. It's not. It's it's not <laughs> common.
1: It is not common. And it's something that I stumbled on. I started doing it because I... Before we moved here, I would do it at work before I started private practice. And I... um. the coolest thing about being a therapist and having a job is all you do is tell your supervisor like this is really good for my mental health and she would be like yeah pray for an hour in the morning i'm like great so i'd come to work and like pray in the morning and i would type out there's this way to like take the bible and flip it so that instead of the verse saying something like and god you know paul talking to the the church of ephesus in the book of ephesians and he would tell the um he would tell ephesus like God cares for you in a way that you'll never understand. Or like Ephesians through 20. It's like, God will do more for you than you could ever think or imagine. Mm-hmm. And you, um, that's a paraphrase. That was not a direct quote. <laughs> I just realized I said it wrong. And, um, and so instead of me copying that down, I would actually flip it, flip the pronouns, I think, and say, God, that's not pronouns, I don't know. And God will do more for me than I could ever think or imagine. Or like, I know that you, God, will do more, could do more for me. That you're able to do more for me than I could ever think or imagine. So it
0: puts you in a different mental space.
1: Yeah. So me thinking, okay, Paul, faith. to the Church of Ephesus, it's, I'm telling God that I know who he is to me, kind of directly. And so that's how I started writing stuff down, was like, I started flipping that, all the, is it flipping pronouns? Really I think, about it. I think it's pronouns. pronouns. Okay.
0: Absolutely, I think it's pronouns. <laughs>
1: yeah, so flipping that. And um, so then I started. So I learned at some point, I, I was studying um, contemplative prayer, which is like a Catholic form of prayer. And I had been studying that for a couple of years. And I started, I was studying it while I was doing the copy, copy of the Bible stuff. And I learned that um, you will start, we should talk about the neuroscience behind this for Yeah, Yes. Um, that you'll start, so you'll, you'll start doing a practice of some kind, like a spiritual practice And when you do it for, like when you first started out, your brain will be flooded with um, distractions and stressors and things that fill your mind with anger and everything not good. (laughs) And so when you start, your brain will be flooded and it will be hard for you to focus. But most people have a breakthrough. If they do it every morning, you'll have a breakthrough like three to four months in Mm -hmm. where you feel this sense of like complete calm and peace. And it's like, and you'll just notice, okay, my brain's been angry every time I try to do this for all this, all these days, all these weeks. And then at some point you'll kind of have a breakthrough and then you bring, like it starts this, this feeling of peace or contentment. That's cool. This,
0: that's, I okay. So let's dive into that because that's okay. Is that for any practice <laughs> that you start?
1: I think that or is it more
0: in the realm of spiritual, a higher understanding.
1: Um, from what I know that's a that's a meditative practice okay. so I would yeah so I wouldn't I, I wouldn't generalize that to any other kind of development of skill It's just when you're being introspective or yeah so like so um you know mine is writing things down but I heard it from the Catholic month- monk Richard Rohr, who's mm-hmm. super trendy right now he's awesome and he I think was quoting Thomas Merton, who's like this other Catholic monk And they're talking specifically about contemplative prayer. Okay. And contemplative prayer is really similar to, like, it's like kind of this Christian-based prayer that's very similar neuroscientifically to um, transcendental meditation. Okay. TM is, like, kind of that basic meditation where, like, you're trying to empty your mind for a certain amount of time. So, like, you sit and you try to keep your mind empty for, like, five minutes and you kind of build the time as you go. Oh, yeah. yeah.
0: So hard to do. Totally.
1: And contemplative prayer is very similar, but the, the difference is that you, from a Christian perspective, you are acknowledging God's presence, as the Bible talks about, not God being like up in heaven, but God being here in the room with us all around us. Like um, Psalm 139 talks about how like he is before me and behind me with his hand over my head. <laughs> so it's like this, like, um, like hemmed in. <laughs> In the presence of God. He's right here. Um, he's like, right here. Um, that's why people say, save six inches for the Holy Spirit. Um, did you, yes. you learn that in school? Okay. In middle school. Or in church.
0: Yeah. Every single dance. <laughs> right? Yeah.
1: That's weird. That just so, like, cool and Southern to me. Because I'm from Northern California, so you know we love Southern things. Um, so, that's what I think of saying. Holy Spirit's right here. Um, six inches. <laughs> um, but, so, with his presence being so close to us, I can practice emptying my mind of all my thoughts and my day and all that and focus on his presence. Does that make sense?
0: Yes. But when we when we start doing that practice and in, in enlightenment and spiritual realm and we get our brain gets flooded with the anger and the doubts and all of that, where is that coming from? Is it our um, our logic that's trying to make sense of everything? Is it I know some religions um are very heavy in that you know that's that Satan talking that's mm, Satan yeah. trying to get into the way the of enemy. that mm-hmm. is the enemy, and then other ones are you know we're just trying to reconcile this this belief system and this faith because faith is not something that you tangibly hold in your hands yeah. all the time yeah so is what where do you where do you think it's
1: coming from um I was just going to go to the brain on it without the spirituality. But we can. <laughs> I I do. I mean, you know, from a Christian perspective, I do think that the enemy wants to interfere with our closeness with God at all times. Right. So I think that's what the Christian perspective would say. Different Christian backgrounds or whatever d- denominations would say that in a different way. But I think there is an idea of like there is um, an influence in this world that wants to keep us from experiencing God's love. So that's Christian perspective. I can't speak to other faiths, honestly. Um, Some, but like I know what's woven into Christianity, but um, from the neuroscientific perspective, and this speaks to our kind of our cultural uh, connection to screens and phones, which Look, is no we have guilt. So
0: many screens happening right now. Yeah, and I, I even
1: think like talking about this is becoming kind of redundant, and because everyone's talking about how bad screens are for you, and it's it feels like TV in the '80s, like what my mom told me about mm-hmm. TV in the '80s. Like I'm gonna go blind if I sit too close to the TV and stuff. Um, but I think that um, I think that we are living in a world of constant distraction, distraction, entertainment, and so there's gonna be moments of silence where our brain gets flooded with all the thoughts that we're trying to avoid so for you know what i mean so yeah. it's like if we're always distracting then we are training our minds to not focus on things that make us angry and worried and sad but instead distract and then the things that make us angry worried and sad overwhelm us but the the opposite is if i'm doing contemplative practice of some sort or doing meditation i'm teaching myself so the whole thing with like contemplative practice or meditation is not that our brain won't get flooded with those things. Of course it will, because that's a normal part of having a brain. I guess right. having worries, living in the world, but that you're choosing, as you get distracted, to not feel guilty or ashamed, but to choose to say, okay, I'm going to redirect back on this. In like transcendental meditation, it's redirect back on nothing, empty my mind or in um i think in yoga don't quote me on this because i don't know a ton about it except i know it's really good for you but in yoga like it's focusing on the divine and then in christian faith and contemplative practice it's focusing on god and his presence in us or like it's focusing on jesus before us whatever that looks like I, i don't think all that's the same by the way but just in this for the sake of the brain it is you know right and so you're you're the thought comes in. So you're trying to focus on whatever you're focusing on. The thought comes in. And then there's all these practices of like, then you let it go. Or you picture the thought, like you're moving down a river and you picture the thought coming towards your boat and you let the thought pass you instead of letting it get into your boat.
0: I love that.
1: Michael, cool? Have you heard that one before? No, I've never
0: <laughs> heard that before. Do you see my face? Like that's a life changing. Isn't
1: that dope? That I is dope. Know. I love that. I you know, know the 90s too. are coming back. So dope talk. is back. Dope is no, back. No, I asked cool people that I know. There's this cool, there are a couple cool, cool people? young can people I that dope? I know. Yes. And I was like, hey, can I say dope? And they're like, it's back. I'm like, great. Because I never stopped saying it. Um, yeah. So, that, so that's so the that's the meditative kind of training. That's why you move into a place where your brain, like a few months in, where you don't feel that same distraction, that same pull. Because... At some point, you really have trained your mind, the well-worn path, right? Mm -hmm. You've trained your mind to stay focused for more and more time. Not forever, but from two minutes to five minutes to ten minutes. Okay. Until you're able to stay focused.
0: So for folks that don't know any of that technique, and they are trying to go deeper into, or they're just finding um, this space to invite uh, religion in, mm-hmm. or any any sort of self meditation, mm-hmm. and those floods of doubt and anger because anger is such an aggressive emotion to have. It is personally. Yep. Um. Not personally. What am I trying to say? When you're angry at yourself for yep. doing something, I feel like that that's so aggressive. Do you mm-hmm. find that some people have to also push through guilt with having to deal with those thoughts?
1: For sure, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think anger is something that brings up a lot of shame often, Mm -hmm. and sometimes we feel the shame afterwards, like after the adrenaline. And there's two kinds of anger, right? There's like the hot anger, I say hot anger and cold anger, or there's like aggressive anger and then resentment. Mm -hmm. People that think that they're not angry people at all, they probably struggle with resentment (laughs) because we all have anger of some kind, I think. Maybe not Jesus, I don't know. (laughs) No, no, he got mad all the time. He Ang- did like anger's like, no, no, no. He got he mad. Got, I he read got irritated. Yeah. Um anger like is a healthy thing. Like if anger's not something to get rid of, anger's something to take mm-hmm. hold of behaviorally, I would say. Mm-hmm. So yeah, to manage. So the feeling, any emotion that comes up in us is something we were created to have. Any emotion of even fear is something that was like created in our mind to keep us safe. Right? Right. If you have, does, if you have a event? saber-toothed tiger coming at you...
0: You need to be a little scared. You want
1: to fight or flight, right? <laughs> you want to, like, fight the saber tooth. I prefer to flight. I don't know. <laughs> um, if we didn't have that mechanism in our mind, then we wouldn't be safe. We wouldn't live in a safe... We wouldn't be safe in an unsafe world. Right. Said. Right. Um, so is
0: guilt and shame two sides of the same coin, or are they different?
1: I think guilt is a... Uh, I think, so I think they are different. They're a similar feeling, but you do something different with it. So I think guilt is something that includes hope and shame is something that doesn't have hope. So meaning like if I feel guilty, so we share a driveway, Let, let's say I park on the wrong day in our driveway, We took us a little while to adjust to our driveway share. I think now it's great. Um, so let's say I screw up. I'd mess you up on the driveway. Let's say I, like, park my car behind you and go, I'm going to leave in the morning for a job and to work and then I sleep in. I don't know if I've ever done that, but I'm No, you've not. not. Okay, cool. um, and, okay, so let's say that that happened and I feel bad about it. I can choose two things. Okay, so that feeling of, like, I did something wrong and I need – and it's not okay – comes up inside of me and then I can move towards guilt where I go, okay, I need to go apologize to Jacqueline and see if I can make amends to you. Like, so there's a hope
0: of, I can
1: alleviate this feeling and repair this. Yeah. I'm not a horrible person. Right. Or I did a horrible thing, but I'm still inherently pretty good. Even though I'm a person that does do horrible things. Right. And that's a guilt thing. Like you go, okay, well I'm, you know, I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to screw up. I can be selfish. I can be this. I can be that. But inherently, I know that I'm still lovable, right. right? Shame is something else. Shame puts you in the place where you are not good at all. You're all bad, mm-hmm. and so with that all bad, you end up um, damaging yourself and others because there's no hope that you can ever be different or that you can ever repair. Yeah, what you feel shame about, right? So if I parked, if I screwed up and parked in the driveway, and you had to go to work and all that, I could either hide from you. And then just, like, stop talking to you for a couple months and lay low and not say anything about it. Or I can come and blame you. Oh. Right? Oh. That is- I could get angry at you and blame you and try to, like, defend myself by blaming you. Because shame sometimes makes us defensive in an odd way. Or mm-hmm. makes us justify our behavior because somehow I have to prove I'm a good person. So that makes sense. Yes. Okay.
0: Yes. And... and- and I think in a lot of our minds, we we segment these different feelings when we're experiencing them with other people. For sure. Or other people are showing us how they are processing these emotions, the shame, the guilt, the anger. And a lot of times, empathy, if it's not there, if compassion isn't there, yeah. um, it's kind of hard to decipher and be able to say, you're definitely coming from a space that has little to do with me right and a lot to do with what you are facing with your own crap with your own (laughs) yeah so you decided for i would like to know why you decided to concentrate in betrayal addiction of um is it all addiction or is it just like sex addiction pornography addiction i saw on your website i was reading your I stalk my subjects that should, I'm that's interviewing. Called research.
1: That's called being a good podcaster. <laughs> Thank you. Because
0: <laughs> I've been called kind of a stalker. So. <laughs> no. Yeah, they're like, well, you're stalking me, but in a good way. No, they no, said, that's good. In a good way. You want to
1: be prepared I want to be know. prepared. Yeah.
0: And also, I want everyone else to understand that we're neighbors. And Suzette's over here bringing up this driveway sharing, but she left out because she's a great person that I backed into her car. Oh, I totally forgot. What do you? What? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I ba- totally backed into her
1: car. So do you feel guilt or shame about that?
0: I felt
1: both. <laughs> you bumped into my husband's car, right? Yep. Ah, car. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And that's what she said. Oh, you're fine. Bumps it all the time. And it made me feel less guilt, but still shameful that I backed into something, Mm. and that there's no hope that I'll actually be a superb driver. But oh no, I will be. Okay, good. There's hope. (laughs) But why did you concentrate? uh, Is it? Are you concentrate? Is it just addiction, um, physical addiction, and sex and pornography, or is it all addiction that you? Okay.
1: This is a story. I'm sorry. Is it going to be too long? Nothing is too long. (laughs) Um, So I started with sex addiction. Mm -hmm. So so therapists, like after grad school and all that, will do like specialized training. Mm -hmm. And so I think I had a few friends who discovered that their spouses were being unfaithful. And I was kind of walking with them through, it was like church friends, and I was walking with them through that. And I, and they're all, it's, it's like talk, you know, I was like, oh, this is, I could totally do this. Like, I have a history of addiction in my family, and I just kind of know what that feels like, that feeling of, I don't know what to do, and I'm confused, and maybe I can help you, and maybe I can save you, and maybe I should have done more, and maybe this is my fault, and I just know those feelings. Right. Um, So... Uh, not sex addiction in my family and not my husband, just so you know. (laughs) Um, Sometimes when you say something so vague, people go, oh, her husband cheated and he did that. Just making that that super clear. (laughs) So I ended up going to this training for, um, I'm also, so I'm also have been a fan of this ministry called New Life Life for like 20 years, 25 years, and they specialize in addiction, like that kind of addiction recovery, sex addiction or betrayal recovery. So I kind of had always heard it on the radio and read their books and Mm -hmm. stuff. Okay. So, um, so then I looked up a training that was working with sex spouses of sex addicts as a specific training and decided to go to that. And I had a colleague who was doing, um, certified sex addiction. Um, his name is Don Diva. He's great. Um, He's in Long Beach. His practice is in Long Beach and in Santa Ana. He's just like, he's one of my favorite colleagues. He's hooked me up with so many opportunities. Like everything that I think of with my business, I can link back to my friend Don Diva. Okay, so um, so Don, my friend Don Diva, which is his real name, he um, he's not a diva. He uh, started specializing in sex addiction therapy. And so I was like, well, if I do this other one, then we could work together as partners. And so that's what we do, not for 100% of our practice, but... He takes on sex addicts or people that have been their spouses in some way, and I take on the partner or the spouse mm-hmm. and um, and work with the anger and the relationship trauma that comes up. And it's turned into... It started with sex addiction, and then it turned into... Um, something a lot bigger. So I find like I have a lot of clients whose partners are narcissists or have some kind of personality disorder, because that can tie into sex addiction. Not always, but it can. Um I would not assume if someone's a sex addict that they're a narcissist, just to say but it's different, but but it can sometimes correlate. Right. Um or like other addictions, or just people that feel betrayed. So I say, I talk about it on my practice, like people that have been through betrayal, because that's a lot of people. A lot of people have been betrayed by their parents, or by family members of some sort, or by, um, it's just a big feeling that I think we've all experienced. And it's a normal thing to go through lament and grief, and have some trauma symptoms from it. So it's not uncommon when someone has found out that their partner has cheated, um, to, you know, pass out or throw up or feel crazy for a few months, like, or feel so disconnected from reality that you're like in a fog, like you feel, you experience real trauma symptoms. Right. Um, and that was a surprise to me. I think that it would be so severe, but it really is severe. So Yeah. So that's how I got into the that part of the field. And then for me, it just kind of generalized into something bigger. Because once you've done a specialty for a few years, you start to see all the connections, I think. Mm-hmm. So then you kind of realize, oh, this is bigger than what I thought. You know? So
0: what is it transforming into? What is the bigger?
1: <clears throat> well, it's turning into working with anyone that's that's been hurt by their partner, I think. Um there's some, like, not a lot of people specialize in working with men that have been betrayed. Mostly it's, like, women that have been betrayed is what the field looks like. And so expanding that, because m- men can stru- men have the same pain and struggle. Right. But it, but it feels different. The stereotype is that the husband's going to cheat, you know, but that's right. not the reality. So, um, so I love working with male clients who have gone through that, too. Um and then I and then right now I'm really thinking through I'm more in like contemplation about this, but rather than doing anything, but I'm thinking through concepts of lament right now and how grief grief recovery, not just from people that have passed away, but loss of your relationship, loss of like your hopes and dreams, loss of what you wanted in life, your career, your family, whatever. How that is a very strong process that does bring you to a hopeful place in the long run, um, and so I'm working a lot with like grief and recovery, grief and lament right now too. Thinking a lot about that and laments like kind of that biblical term, that um, that Hebrew right, that like right. Hebrew Bible term about that the Psalms talk about in terms of like us crying out to God in our anger and our sadness and wanting hope and wanting direction from Him. Okay. Do you feel like
0: betrayal, addiction? Um, regardless of the specialty that you're in that some of the practices and techniques that you have could go across those lines so if somebody feels say betrayed um, not because their significant other or parent or friend or sibling left them um, just to leave them Mm -hmm. but has passed away or or something, does the techniques and the insight on how to move through that feeling of betrayal, that sadness and that grief, um, is that fluid across those?
1: Yeah, I think this is why you go see a therapist instead of like reading a book on it or something. Because you take, so we take theory and we take our knowledge of how people change and grow Mm -hmm. and then we apply that together And make that kind of a unique recipe for every single client. Mm -hmm. So I think um, just like, okay, so anxiety can be like stress because you have a big paper due that week, right? Anxiety can start there and it can be all the way to like panic disorders or like post-traumatic stress disorder or like pretty severe anxiety disorders. And it's all kind of similar symptoms, but there's a severity that changes when it comes to the different diagnoses. Or the different kind of causes of it or what you're anxious about has different diagnoses. Um, And that's the same thing, I think, with betrayal. I think betrayal can be, you can feel feelings on, like, a lower level. Um, Let's say you, like, interview for a job that you really wanted and they chose someone else. That would bring up betrayal feelings, you know? Like, I I thought they were mine and then they gave it to somebody else. I thought that they were going to accept me and they rejected me, like, that feeling. And all the way to, like, I don't know what the most severe kind of betrayal would be, but I would think part of it is, like, that my, my partner has been living a life that's different than the life I thought we were living together. Right. Which then changes what I think about my whole life, which is why it's so disorienting.
0: And that's why they, uh, most people often describe this as my world has shattered right. or has turned upside down. Everything that I believed and thought to be true
1: yeah. is not. Yeah, because your memory of what you thought happened last January when you guys went to Disneyland or whatever, like the reality is, so like an example of that is let's say you went to Disneyland with your partner a year ago and you had a really good day and your partner was like on their phone and you asked them why they were on their phone so much and you realized that and and they said, oh, I'm just checking my email for work. I know I have an email coming in. Okay, you realize once you realize that they've been cheating all this time, that you look back and you go, that whole day at Disneyland, which was a lovely day, mm-hmm. and I felt so connected and in love that day. And that whole, I'm frustrated because the lines for sure. And that whole day, <laughs> <laughs> that's always part of Disneyland. So that whole day, I thought we were in love and connected, and I felt so fortunate that what from what we had was just ours. And the reality is, is that you were texting the person you were cheating on me with the whole day.
0: And is that, that sense? The, yes, and is that the biggest gut? punch that you get in betrayal is that because when you when you find something that challenges everything you thought to be true yeah. everything you thought to be sacred that you have built your reality around mm-hmm. the the irony part of it is when you find out that that worst thing you don't immediately get flooded back to all the the fights and the bad situations or any of the 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 anger that had been present before, all all of your memories are flooded back to the good times, and it immediately starts altering
1: those. Yeah, it changes the memory. You're weaving in new information, which mm-hmm. is how memory works all the time. Right. Refer back to the, the the movie Inside Out. You're weaving in new information into your memory, and that's part of. So when we talk about like fear and fight or flight in the brain. Mm-hmm. Um. The part of your brain that, d- that sets you into fight or flight that like makes you go into survival mode and gives you a lot of anxiety and it's the ki- it's the part of your brain that overfires when you have PTSD and all that. The kind of partner part of that organ, so that's called the amygdala. And the partner part of that organ is the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is partly in charge of memory. Your whole brain kind of helps with memory, but the hippocampus has a lot to say about memory. And the hippocampus calms down the amygdala when it's firing, like, fight or flight, get out of there, beat that person up, I'm in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> beat
0: that person up, I'm in trouble.
1: So the hippocampus comes alongside and goes, no, you're actually safe. Okay. It makes sense out of what you have just experienced. You're, you're safe, everything's okay, that it's not a saber-toothed tiger running towards you. I don't know. That's always my example. I don't know why it feels very historic. Um, but, the, but, it's, but the hippocampus also can say, what you thought was safe is not safe. Mm. So you thought you were safe and in love the day at Disneyland, mm. and in reality, your yeah. spouse was doing something else that whole time, living a whole other life.
0: So how do you, how do you what's the first step in moving through
1: it? You come to my office and you get really angry for like two months. And two the months. anger is good. <laughs> anger is good. You don't yeah. have to work through it's like you f- anger. You feel through like your anger and your sadness and your desire to be close to your partner and then the desire to push them away, that kind of pull in, pull out thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you And part of like my job is to educate you on what's happening. And encourage you to just feel it through for a bit and not allow not make big decisions at that time Is part of my job um, because you never know where you're gonna be in a month or two right um, and so it's not that anything you do can be healthy but I think a lot of us kind of cram down the anger feeling or like you know there can be an emotional abusive component to betrayal where like after you discover the betrayal the person that betrayed you goes, okay, well, it's out now, so we can just move past it. and Why aren't you over this yet? And why are you acting so crazy? And I told you this a month ago, why aren't you better yet? You know, that kind of stuff. And so part of the recovery is feeling it through and trusting your gut that like, you don't have to be over it. This person has not proven to you that they're safe yet. You can hang tight and not make any decisions in terms of divorce or separation, but, but you still don't have to trust them.
0: When the partner is steadfast on, hey, it's been two months, it's been six months, it's been a year. When are we moving past this? Like, why can't you get over this? Mm -hmm. Are they sometimes operating from that place of wanting to be over their guilt of it? They want it. Let's just move past this so I don't have to keep feeling responsible for your unhappiness or your insecurity or your... Yeah. Is that a big component of that? Or shame no?
1: is a big component of it for sure. And mm-hmm. so it's hard to tolerate their own shame. I think also they're not incorporating the new memory. They're not doing all this hard work to like change their history of their relationship. Because they were always living the double life and justifying it. Usually. And so they don't, their brains
0: not having to reconcile yeah. that day
1: at Disneyland. They're not they're going looking. through the crazy mm. loops. Yeah. So I think that they, I think that's part of it. It's really hard to understand the process of recovery and of betrayal recovery. Um, And I think you, I think that you learn at some point to, um, you kind of learn to trust. So the way that couples repair, I found my train of thought, the way that couples repair this is they, um, if neither one of them is like a narcissist or a sociopath or whatever, like the way. Those
0: are definitely a different route. Yeah.
1: It's a different route. But if you're relatively safe and able to reconnect on both sides, and really a therapist can kind of help figure that part out, then you repair it by the person that did the betraying, leaning into comfort and show empathy for the pain, instead of saying like, why aren't you past this? Why aren't you past this? Saying, I know it's hard, man, it's so I can't believe you're going through this. I did this to you. And what do you need from me? And of course, you're angry this morning. Can I give you a hug, or do you need me to leave you alone, or whatever? You know, so they're they're always kind of there to support the betrayed person's emotion. Mm-hmm. Not always, because this can never be perfect, but the best they can, right? And then they also are going out to like healthy relationships, maybe a therapist, or maybe a group, or maybe a good friend that your partner trusts. The person that d- does the betraying is off with a group or a person and talking through the emotion. Somebody that doesn't think that you're just a cheating jerk, right? You know, but somebody that knows your heart and knows that you intend to be different and all that and helps you with that. So, therapist totally helps with that. Um, and there's other options that aren't as expensive. <laughs> if you, <laughs> the therapist can totally help you with that. Um, so. So then they're always leaning into their partner and always leaning out for support from Mm -hmm. an appropriate person, not, you know, from a new affair partner or anything because it's really hard to sit for the person that betrayed the person or the sex addict or whatever. It's really hard to sit in the middle and say, well, they don't, my partner doesn't love me anymore and I have to be alone because I lost my affair partner. So I just have to sit here, Like a cheating jerk for the rest of my life. This is who I am. And a year down the road, there's no hope. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So really, because it takes so much time to reconnect and rebuild trust, you have to have your support. Right. And have good people that care about you and know that you're a good person and know that, you know, you do need to suck it up and love him or her.
0: Is forgiveness final? Or? No,
1: it's a process. um, But once you reach it, is it final? Uh, I think forgiveness is more of a starting point than it is an ending point. Mm. So, this is off my, at the top of my head just saying so, you know, I haven't thought about this before but I do think forgiveness is more of like a decision that you make to then live out forgiveness in your life.
0: And so it's something that you'll always have to be cognizant of and remind yourself hey I'm it's not that I because when we say it in a past tense well I forgave mm-hmm. then it's always coupled with then I have to forget. I have to move past it. Right. But isn't, yeah, but isn't forgiveness something that you wake up every day and you say, I'm going to allow myself to feel hurt or sad or angry or whatever, but I'm going to also remember that I have forgiven this.
1: Yeah. I think you go through, I think you re forgive. So for me, I don't know if everybody's like this, but I re forgive. I don't, I don't like shame myself for not being through it yet. I had to train myself mm. to do that. So I think you, at some point you make the decision to forgive. Okay, so let's say going back to like the affair. Let's say it's been a year and you just, you've gone through all this recovery and your partner's gone through a bunch of recovery and you feel like, okay, it, the, enough trust is back that I think we can move forward. Great. So it's a year past it. Let's say it's about a year. And so then you go, okay, so I'm going to decide right now that we're going to stay together mm-hmm. and I will forgive you. Mm -hmm. But then when I wake up tomorrow and I'm flooded with anger and fear or like, let's say the next time we have sex, I'm flooded with memories of what you probably did with this other person or, or whatever. I will decide then again, I will ask you for comfort, not do it on my own and tell you this just came up for me. I really need you to help me. And then the partner, by then you should have a plan for comfort stuff. So then your partner comforts you. And then you say, okay, I will choose again to forgive you. Because I've already decided it, so now I'm going to practice forgiveness.
0: And you're dealing like two different things. Would you Would you agree, or or what's your opinion on now? You're dealing with a a separate emotion. So when a betrayal first happens on both sides, Mm -hmm. you're dealing with the act Mm -hmm. of betrayal and behavior or personality that drove to to that betrayal or that act. Mm -hmm. But then afterwards, when the trust is built, you're no longer necessarily dealing directly about the act, but you're dealing with the insecurities that are the residual of the act.
1: Yes. Because once trust is big enough, right? Once trust is because a up. few months in, how do I know now that you, so you're texting your homie? How do I know that you're not texting? It's not, a new affair partner. It's
0: not just an insecurity. It's now reality. Proof yeah. Proof yeah. In the pudding. This
1: is my reality. You are able to live a, a separate life from me. Exactly. You're able to be in a whole other relationship than with me, or you're able to engage with, other people in this way and still come home every day so
0: what do you do with a client that has is still not trusting after a given amount of like the partner has done everything Mm -hmm. in their power Mm -hmm. to promise and to show you know back up with actions Mm -hmm. and the other one is just not willing what do you say to those because not a betrayal of of Cheating or anything like that, but there have been people in my life where I thought it was one thing and I found out that it was not Mm -hmm. and um, So any kind of dishonesty is a huge thing like if you're honest with me We can work through anything Mm -hmm. But if there if I feel like or if I witness you being untruthful to me in any regard Mm -hmm. and that could be about a hobby
1: you have totally
0: (laughs) um, you tell me you don't, uh, eat sugar. And then I see you with a donut. Like it immediately takes me into the,
1: let me know if that's ever happened. Cause no, not at all. <laughs> I've gotten it out of sugar.
0: <laughs> not at all. But you know what I mean? So what do you tell a person that, okay, I've moved through and there's enough evidence? Mm-hmm. Is, that's a harsh word, mm-hmm. right? There's enough evidence showing that yeah. I can now regain my comfort and trust in you. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're still just like really going after. They're still holding them to the fire on everything. They want to go golfing or the girl wants to go have a girl's night out and she was the one that had portrayed the husband mm-hmm. or whatever. And they're like, they're extra controlling.
1: Yeah. What do you do with that? I think you know... So, at some point, the controlling behavior can... Or whatever, the fear... Because controlling behavior is always about fear, right? Mm. So, the fear that comes up inside of you that you're not safe in the relationship. And then controlling behavior as a result. You... Um, so, if, if it was my client, we would talk through, well, are you safe? How do you know that you're safe? How has this person rebuilt the trust? And then we bring kind of the reality, the facts, the evidence back into the fear, and try to like comfort the fear, and also uh, kind of uh, have you claim the belief that you have about the trust. Does it, that make sense? Yeah, it kind of neutralize your emotions, it, right? Because emotions are an emotion, like it's a normal part of being a person. They don't. I just read this in a book. <laughs> like they don't. Uh, they don't identify. They don't define our identity but they speak to our identity to an extent, right? Emotions
0: don't define our identity.
1: Yeah, so what I feel, so if I, even if I struggle with anger, which I do, um, doesn't mean I'm an angry person. That's not who I am. It's something that happens to me that I maybe let control my behavior that I need to address. That's you know?
0: eye-opening. Yeah. Because we, we're all, I, well, I don't know, a lot of people in my life, we're all looking for those things that define us. Because there's some comfort in knowing who we are. Yeah. And I, I'm i in the boat that our emotions are in, deeply intricated to who we are. Oh, they're just an angry person. Oh, they're just a confident person. Oh, they're yeah. so insecure or whatever. Yeah. But when you just said that, like extreme comfort. <laughs> okay. Oh, <good>. Comfort <laughs> just, I was like, wait, what?
1: <laughs> I think about like emotions are always changing. It's like. Like if you're a fan of Sound of Music, I always think of. The I am how, okay. So how do you pin a wave upon the sand? Like you can't pin an emotion upon the sand. <laughs> even a lot you like You and can't you even can, say it. You have to, have it. to sing it. You can't it. It. <laughs> <laughs> say it. Um, yeah, like how, they, it's something that flows through you, right? It's like it's like a problem like Maria, and so you. So with emotions, you have to let them kind of flow through you and you watch, this is very biblical, and you watch how they affect your behavior. But even like the Bible, when it talks about anger, it'll say something like, don't sin in your anger. So if I'm mad at somebody, I, there's a difference between me feeling anger at them and going and confronting them kindly and lovingly, caring about me and them and trying to work something mm-hmm. out, which nobody's really good at that. Everybody needs to work on that. Or... There's, there's a difference between that and me going and cussing you out or me going and avoiding you for three months. Right. Yeah. Uh, So there's a way to be good and kind and loving within anger. There's a way Mm -hmm. to be good and kind and loving, even within fear, you know?
0: Well, how do you, because i all, a lot of my stuff is, um, perceived as avoidance Mm -hmm. because whenever there's, and I have my own reasons for it. And watch me not turn this into a therapy session. <laughs> Why um, not? <laughs> well, because I would have to get my check <laughs> before we started a long time back. Um, whenever there's a confrontation, or if somebody is um, if, if, any confrontation, doesn't mm-hmm. matter. I immediately shut down. Not shut down like don't look at me, don't talk to me, don't anything. I have got to go quiet for however long that takes.
1: Do you feel disconnected from your body
0: a little bit? Mm, no, uh-huh. I am totally inside because, because based on the confrontations that I've had earlier in life, um, I'm having to, and a lot of people don't get this, is I'm having to battle and so, I'm not just sorting out what happened, why did this happen, what was my part in it, all of that. I'm having to sort out and having to tell myself it's not your fault this happened. It's not your fault this happened. It's not your fault that they're angry. They can control their anger. You don't get to control everything that they do. And then also coupled with that, they're not going to hurt you. Right. They're not going to come after you. And I'm
1: physically safe. I'm physically I, yeah.
0: safe. Yeah. I, they are not a saber-toothed tiger
1: ready to devour. I'm me. On me. Yeah. Right? And so your amygdala is firing. Yeah. Your fight or flight is firing. But sometimes it takes
0: a long time. Yeah. It takes, like, months it could sometimes it'll take a year before i can have an, another conversation with that person and even then i'm very like are you okay is there anything i can do mm-hmm. and then i find myself and another reason why i go intro is when i do encounter that person again i'm overly pleasing mm. like eggshell walking like okay okay i'll be better this time i'll be good this time i won't m- I won't force you to to be uncomfortable or
1: uncomfortable in yeah. any way.
0: Yeah. Am I crazy? No. I'm okay.
1: Not, I'm not crazy. Um, oh no no. no. <laughs> I do think that you, not you, but generally you, um, it's e- so it goes back to your question of like how do I, I from your question. Was, but okay, so there's a so if you're not healed, this was your question about like what happens if you've done all this work and your relationship is mm-hmm. still not healed. It's a similar answer. When there, We learn how to trust from the very beginning of our life, Mm -hmm. from our very earliest relationships with our earliest caregivers. And, you know, stereotypically, that's the mama, but whatever. Like, you know, many, many people can be good primary caregivers. Right. Grandmothers and dads and grandfathers and uncles and aunts. And non-family, blood-related people. Um, Some brothers and sisters can be really good... Primary care okay So when you when you experience in your first year of life a feeling of I can trust that my needs which are physical, emotional, and physical needs are the same when you're a baby, right? If you're hungry, if you're wet, if you're pooped and you need to change a dirty diaper, like you feel sad and angry and uncomfortable, Right. right? And so like in those first in that first few years of life, you learn When I have a need, I can put it out into the world, which is to my primary caregiver, and they will meet the need. And some people in the first few years of life don't have that. Some people they they cry and cry and cry and their needs aren't met. Mm -hmm. You know? And or they learn to be quiet and then they're not checked on. Or they're whatever. Like we kind of learn in our first few years of life, how do I reach out for my needs to be met? And what happens when I'm angry, sad, and afraid, and fill in the blank on the rest of the emotions? Am I met with empathy and comfort and care, or am I met with anger, or indifference, or frustration, or whatever else? And a
0: lot of us don't remember the first few years as babies. Yeah. So a lot of your patients, you're having to understand and help them dissect, is this something new that you're experiencing because of a recent action, or is this a your the emotions or how you respond or react and think is this coming from a deeper inset?
1: Yeah. And you learn because this is one of my favorite parts of that theory. That's attachment theory, by the way. One of my favorite parts of that theory is you um there's such a thing as okay, so there's like uh innate memories that's my stomach too okay. can our mics pick it up i don't know <laughs> I, I, I was because really <laughs> so there's innate memories and then there's some other kind of memory that i can't remember but like the, when i think of a memory i think of like a picture i can like play the video in my head of a memory right mm-hmm. but we also have these what they call um, innate memories that are from those first years that are filed away as emotion okay so like I didn't think of a good example of when, but like I will feel red faced and hot and flushed and sw- that sweaty feeling and it makes me feel shame. I'll feel that at the weirdest times and I don't have a lot of trauma, honestly, mm-hmm. but I'll feel that at the weirdest times and I'll know and I'll wonder why I will also feel I realized at some point that shame I feel I don't know it's a general thing, but shame I feel like in my kind of my lower stomach, like the bottom part of my stomach, and I'll like feel it like a swipe, like from there to there. and And so there's this innate memory of like, what is my body doing, and what is my emotion? And even if it doesn't make sense based on my picture memory memories, it makes sense back based on something that must have happened. So it doesn't mean that I'm repressing sexual abuse or anything, but it just means like, okay, so somehow my body responded in a way when I was young that developed a pattern of emotion. And I don't have to find that memory or figure out what happened or any of that. You don't? No. I mean, like if, if it doesn't pick up in your pictures. So with my clients, like, like if you're my client and you didn't know why, Mm -hmm. then I would go, okay, like, that's okay. What's happening though? Is it shame? Is it fear? Is it you know? And the first thing we do is basically for a a few months, I go, okay, you have that emotion. Is this the emotion? Where do you feel it in your body? Okay, well, that emotion makes sense to me. And then we have to learn to go. I'm not wrong for feeling the shame, sweaty, red faced feeling.
0: And that's enough. You You don't have to go all the way back Mm -hmm. and like and divide up the memory and all of that. No, the memory's not popping up. The important, the the big part of that is going, it's
1: okay to feel this. Yeah. Now what do I do moving forward? You give yourself permission to feel any emotion physically that comes up. Mm. So anytime you feel the tension or the sweaty, or the, it's like it's amoral, which is not the word I want it to be, but it's like there's no morality to feeling anger, to feeling fear, to mm-hmm. feeling... You're not wrong for feeling afraid, and if I felt wrong for feeling afraid, then I would just pile shame on that right. big old pile. <laughs> I wouldn't feel better, you know? Right. So there's no morality to feeling any emotion. But you want to you wanna watch your behavior, right, mm-hmm. with the emotion, but make a plan for comfort.
0: What do you do if that's not enough and you feel like you have to
1: go backwards?
0: To, uh, into the to, memories? Into the memories.
1: If you have the memories, then great. Like if, if it pops up and the picture, memory comes up and all that. So, so for people that have suffered pretty severe abuse at a young age, Mm -hmm. a lot of times there's no memory or there's like flashes of very loud memories that like when you feel the memory, this is a trauma thing. When you feel the memory, you're not just like remembering something, but you're feeling transported back into the time. In it's the like emotion, a time machine.
0: Smell, v- yes. vision, all of that. Yeah,
1: and that's where like you know trigger is such a cute, trendy word right now. But it is. this is because the whole world is becoming trauma informed. So even though it's trendy and it's a little annoying, it's valuable for that reason. Um, but that's where the trigger thing comes from. It's like it's you're getting triggered back into a memory that pulls your whole body back into it mm. that's why people, why people will kind of freeze that's why you might freeze in the moment because you have this memory your body has a memory of like if I speak up or do anything something bad's gonna happen and your body learns maybe over I'm totally guessing but your body learned over time your your brain and your body at six years old or five years old or ten learned over time. Okay, if I just lay low and shut up and hide...
0: It will go over
1: and then I yeah. can come in with a really good
0: joke and make light of it all and everybody will be happy again.
1: Right, because at some point you're going to find... Right, so then that's where you have power in yeah, the situation, that right? Yeah, that's where my power is. Is I can like neutralize this with a joke after I'm quiet because mm-hmm. at some point this heat is going to blow over and I can just...
0: Like the whole world can be throwing stuff around our head and if you
1: just wait that out, you can come back and go, that escalated quickly. That was crazy. Right. And then that gives you the impression as a kid, which is the normal part of being a kid in that situation, that you have more control over the things than you really do. Right. Right. But you need just that that little semblance of control in order to still feel safe enough in the dynamic, in the family dynamic. Should
0: people understand, and I don't even know if I'm right about this, maybe I should ask is this a correct way of thinking? Um, There's some comfort in knowing that you don't have control.
1: Yeah. Is there? Yes. It's hard for me to generalize this outside of my faith. But for me, faith-wise, I think, okay, I don't have control over this and bad things are going to happen and suffering's a part of life, but I do know that there is a creator of the universe that loves me. And so even in this specific situation where it feels scary, mm-hmm. I know that there's a creator of the universe that loves me. You know, so there's like this comfort and like being understood right, by like the being in the world that has ultimate power, which I think is Jesus.
0: And other people that believe in whatever their higher power is, it's that comfort can come. What about those that don't have a higher power?
1: I don't have a good answer for it yet. But I think that there is one. I think you, that most you, of us believe in something higher, not a higher power, but like something that brings the world together.
0: That makes sense for
1: us. Yeah, I do think that there's hope in most belief systems. Right. Right?
0: There has to or be. Or like you believe
1: in yourself, or you believe in the universe, or you believe in, yeah. So I do think that there's, I think we're all kind of trained to have that hierarchy. Right. In some way. I don't know. What about, I don't want to generalize that.
0: Okay. Sure. Uh, what about the secret?
1: <laughs> it's been a while since I looked at it.
0: What about <laughs> folks? Because yeah, I me got, the,
1: me
0: <laughs> I am. Because I have a couple of girlfriends that are very adamant that I am manifesting. Okay. And I'm not quite on board with the manifesting. And the reason why, and they have, in and, and all fairness, they have said, we're not quoting the secret. Because <laughs> I watched the documentary and I was like, I'm sorry. I could go out to my mailbox and scream, I am not in debt. Good news will come, and I will still get the bill because it's Tuesday and it's the 11th of the month. I just, and they said that I need to stop just concentrating
1: on that component of it, mm-hmm. but. Um, that's the part about it that I know, honestly. I don't know if I know much more about it.
0: Well, do you think that what we, okay. So I'm gonna ask this in a way that I understand it, if that's okay. Yeah. So I think the reason why people, just assume that i believe in manifesting is because i do come from the belief house that whenever we want something to happen good or bad um and we think about that and we're cognizant of that that we are going to adjust our behavior and mm-hmm. our actions to make that happen so if i want um my life to be a little bit more peaceful then i'm going to say how can i make how can i be more pe- peaceful mm-hmm. and that is controlling my anger or not getting too excited and so now I'm just on a heightened aware when I do those things yeah and like, then I correct but it's, it's like buying a red
1: car and then always seeing the red car And always I don't know if it's car. the same brain. no that's
0: exactly yeah. where I put that
1: you like a micro behavior shift kind of right. where you're always seeking the peace and then you're going to be apt to see the peace when it comes and notice it and maybe not notice the things that aren't as peaceful because you're going to feel right. like you have more say. It's like, yes, okay.
0: absolutely. Mm-hmm. That we still have a, a little bit of, and it's not control because mm-hmm. control's not, I don't feel like you can control everything, but um, that your intention and your, yeah, your intention and your behavior is now cognizant, is now. Your awareness is heightened Mm -hmm. to then act and behave accordingly to what you want to do. That's really interesting. I'm not sure if it's necessarily the universe (laughs) giving me what's on my list. I'm sorry. I just... (laughs) I'm sorry. But um, I'm just not certain. And even, even in religion and praying, I believe in... I can I can completely understand praying for answers, wisdom, and guidance. Mm-hmm. But if at first I don't sit there and say I would like wisdom, answers, and guidance, I'm not preparing myself to even receive anything. Mm-hmm.
1: Sure, that makes sense. Is that? I have a lot of thoughts, and my first one is that I think that thinking that we have the power to bring. <laughs> just pre apologies thinking that we have the power to bring this comes with no judgment to people that think this is a, a non-judgmental no, no, no. zone I just for me I I so I grew up in a very kind of I'm clearly white because if you're on the video with me I'm white very American families from the Midwest and from the south and like just super fifth or sixth generation American mm-hmm. Just the whitest girl on the planet. And my husband is Mexican-American. And his, his first generation, uh, parents were immigrants. And he, you know, he's kind of like, he's definitely the first person in his family to be educated. And he's the per- first person, you know him, he's got a point down. Mm-hmm. And laughs really loud when he's watching TV. Yes. Um, <laughs> and he's the first person in his family to speak English. Because his mom spoke Spanish until he went to school. And I think she started speaking English when they were in high school. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he's... He's the first in a lot of ways and does not have the same like white middle class background as I do. So I've always felt like I had a lot of power in the world. And it's, it, it kind of wasn't until I met my husband that I realized that that was a privileged perspective. Mm. Because I grew up with parents that are still married, that love each other and we're middle class and we always had all of our needs met and not having our money not having money meant that we couldn't buy sodas when we went out to dinner because my mom was a very safe secure cute little lady and i just grew up thinking i had a lot of power in the world i think because my world has always been really secure and safe right by no means because of anything that i have ever done to bring it around i just grew up in a world where i was loved and cared for and safe right and so i my husband's very loved by his family, but did not grow up safe. He grew up in the projects in the 80s when it was really bad
0: in L.A. They are making documentaries on yeah, that Yeah, for
1: example, now. yeah. Um, and, you know, it's like from the era where, like, the initial hip-hop came out of him. Like, there's just <laughs> a lot of songs about it. Um, <laughs> and he grew up in, a, in an unsafe neighborhood where he was often worried about getting beaten up. He was always a good kid and didn't get invested in gangs or anything, but like he was always kind of around kids that really struggled
0: mm-hmm. and
1: were really angry and he were pretty aggressive and uh, and unsafe adults and unsafe this and that and this and, that. and not money and not new clothes and he knew when they were broke because they were eating beans and rice all the time and right. it just, it's so different than when you go out for pizza and you can't afford soda So that you can have an extra pizza that month. That's how my mom framed it. Um, I just always felt safe and secure. I grew up in a nice house. I grew up, you know, just a nice little seaside town, like, you know, Mm -hmm. not rich. My parents aren't rich, but, um, and I'm the first person to go to college, but they just took good care of us. But there was a level of security in them. A lot of security, yeah. And generational wealth, right? Like my parents' parents invested in their house. There's just like, there's a lot of things that come with being um, privileged. Mm Mm-hmm. And white privilege and middle class privilege, et cetera. So anyway, uh, so I think that, so so anything that I felt like where I draw good to me because I've created this world because I have all this power in the world, to me is about my privilege. Mm. And it's, I'm trained that way by my husband because he doesn't think that way at all. So I always think everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be okay. Like it's going to work out. There's hope. God's promised this to me. He thinks we do our best and we work as hard as we can and we love people in our life and we love our family and we do our best and everyone screws up and we're not gonna get what we want all the time. And that I'm
0: in that school of college. well, you have
1: a very similar background, I think, to him from <laughs> the few things I've heard. And that's I think that's beautiful. And I think for me who's always had kind of magical thinking mm-hmm. around that stuff, which is a clinical term. It is? Yes. They I use magical thinking as a clinical term? That's a clinical term, yeah. Something that's appropriate developmentally until you're like mid high school to like out of high school.
0: Is that our dreaming?
1: No, magical thinking is thinking that you have more power in the world than you oh. really do. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that might be manifesting. I don't know. I'm not saying it's diagnosable. <laughs> I'm not saying anybody's crazy. But you just, it's a different, like the way that you think, I think mm-hmm. is much more aligned with reality. Then I think that way because my mom bailed me out of stuff my whole life. So I never had any real consequences. Do you know what I mean? For real. All right. Like my life is secure because my mom and dad made it secure. It's not secure because I, you know. But with that love that I received, I I know that I am more hopeful than other people that I meet. Mm -hmm. And I know that I'm more able to experience the love of God Mm -hmm. than many other people that I meet because I know what love is because I felt it. I know what safe security is because I felt it.
0: Has your faith ever been tested? Your belief in God ever been tested?
1: Uh, probably not in the way that other people's have. I never, um, the, a trendy term right now in Christian faith is deconstruction, mm-hmm. where you kind of move, you transition from what you grow up, grew up knowing, if you grew up in the church, and then you move into a more kind of um, healthy perspective of who God is. So I definitely had that transition and then my heart's been broken about things that I thought were true about God and aren't true about God. Mm-hmm. And I've actually just moved through in the last couple of years, my husband and I struggled with infertility. I don't know if you know that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we just finished, I've talked about this on our podcast, so it's not, it's not a secret, um, but we've just finished IVF. We did IVF last year. Um, so if I did anything crazy last year, that's why. You did, you did. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> um, but, uh, and so we've had about a year, it failed. And so we had about a year going, okay, wow. So that's that. And what are we going to do now?
0: Mm-hmm. And the
1: answer right now is travel, but there's going to be better answers too. Um, but, uh, so we, so I've been grieving for the yeah. last year. We've been trying to have kids since 2012. So that's almost seven years. So that's seven years. Yeah. So, um, And so I've been grieving all my friends that I started trying to have kids when they started trying to have kids, all have kids and like their kids are like playing soccer and stuff. It's crazy. And so I've been moving through a process with God where like, I was really angry at him. There was this one worship song that talked about God's promises. Mm -hmm. And every time I was just talking to the worship pastor about this morning and every time that song would come up, I'd be so mad, so angry with him. And like, just you get, you get like, when you know I would not by any means be a perfect mom. But I'd be a pretty good mom. I think so. Yeah. And my husband would be a really good dad. And so when you know that that's true and you don't get what you want and there's nothing you can do about it, there's no amount of money, there's no, you know, it just is what it is. And then you, you kind of learn, I've learned for the first time in a very real way, like I don't have control here or power here. Mm-hmm. And it's not that. God won't use it and won't do something beautiful with it. Yes. But that's not comforting when you're grieving. No, it's not. <laughs> and so I think you learn at some point, like, hopefully. I think what I've learned is that the more I've leaned into the feeling of anger, the more I've wrestled with him, the more of, like, like the book of Job, like, Job complains and weeps to God about all that he's lost. That's in the Old Testament, like the mm-hmm. Hebrew the Hebrew Bible. He complains about it. There's like 48 chapters in Job or something like that. Job complains about to God and they're in discussions about his pain for like more than 25 chapters, 30 chapters. And it's only at the end of Job does God answer him with the real answer, which is very scary and I don't want that answer. But God allows Job to sit with him in pain Mm -hmm. and pray and pray for all these chapters before he answers and so what I've learned is like all right I'm gonna start praying I feel it that he sits with me in the pain and I just had someone tell me like two year two weeks ago it was a breakthrough that he that no matter how what grief you're in when you're in prayer if you know God well then you know that he is not trying to rush you into happiness or contentment or hope or anything else. He sits with you in the pain as long as you need him to. And he's never like tapping his watch, expecting you to be somewhere else. Everyone else in your world is going to be like, why aren't you over this yet? Come on, just do it. Everyone's telling us right now. Come on, like you can just always adopt. Like it's not hopeless. You're not going to not be a parent. You can just adopt. Like that's, I'm hearing that constantly right now. Fine. True. But fine. (laughs) But you're not getting where I'm at. You know, and nobody's doing anything wrong because nobody, the whole thing about this intimacy with God in prayer is like, nobody's going to get where you're at besides him. He's the one that created you, that stands before you and behind you with his hand over your head. And he sits with you and is never out of patience on which way you're going to go. And he will lead you there. He won't let you sit in it. He's going to lead you there, but he's going to lead you there one step at a time with patience and invite you in a way where you're going to want to go. Does that make sense? It's so much longer than what the person just told me. They gave me like a short sentence. I've been thinking about it for weeks. And so that has broken through for me where I'm like, okay, I don't, I can hate a worship song and just hate it. And that's beautiful because I'm invited to be angry at God. And he goes, okay, be angry with me. For 28 chapters, he let Job complain to him, Whatever, <laughs> however many chapters, 40, whatever. He let Job complain to him. And he was like, uh-huh, uh-huh.
0: What's interesting is listening to you talk about this and then circling back to the very beginning about your idea of what a good (gasps) therapist was. It's very, very similar. Oh, look at you. That was a nice pullback. Oh, I like that. But it is. It's interesting to me because what that is telling me is that you hold that patience in high regard, but not just that. Mm -hmm. That you know that there is such... Um. lesson and so so much power in having to sit through all of your emotions totally because if you skip it if you try to wash over them or you try to ignore them isn't it just going to come circle back around and bite you in the butt when you're
1: in a similar situation totally and I think you condition yourself to not trust your emotion mm-hmm and yeah, it's not who we are, that? but will we train ourselves out of, like, a very disciplined person, which I consider you to be just because I know stuff that you've done in the past and your hobbies and, you know, you were doing martial arts and all sorts of cool stuff. It's all disciplining. And your house is always clean. And very My routine. I'm
0: a very routine
1: right. person. Yeah, Rules, people. There are rules. <laughs> I remember one time knocking on your door and you, like, had your hair up in a cute scarf and you're like, I'm cleaning because it's Saturday. <laughs>
0: Oh, because that's how I have to answer the door. No, no. I was like, like, "What are you
1: doing?" I said, "Like, I know it was was part of conversation. What you doing?" And you're like, "Oh, I'm cleaning." Oh yeah, and we're like doing our Saturday chores, and I was like, "Saturday chores?" Because you know what we do on (laughs) Saturdays? We chill out. Uh, I always think, and I always think, Jacqueline's probably over there cleaning her house. Schedule, schedule. schedule. That's why her house is clean. That's why my house is dirty. (laughs) Because I'm just hanging out. But
0: my days, there's some days where everything in my life, including my house, is a hot mess. Yeah, and I. And I've I'm not al- seen that. Well, I'm allowing well, I won't let any I'm not to the point where I will let anyone um see that. Yeah. I'm I'm getting to the point where I'm allowing people to see my hot messness. Mm-hmm. Um But I'm just and I've been working on this for maybe about I don't know, my son's seventeen. So let's say twenty years. <laughs> I've been Really trying to work on um, not allowing other people's perception or judgment dictate how I feel about myself.
1: Oof, that sounds good. Sounds like a good idea.
0: I've been, I've gone through a lot of therapists. So perhaps I've manifested you to be my neighbor. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Who
1: knows? What do Perhaps I, you? I stay in our place because Jackless. I know I'm not gonna get another neighborhood. Jackless. So maybe we should just stay, even though I hate our house. Our house is falling apart.
0: <laughs> I have a little secret. I it. not know. enjoy it here. I'll share with you offline. Okay. Um, but what I'm curious. Wh- wow. Oh, okay. We're about thirty minutes over. We're gonna oh. we're gonna come to, to a see, closing here. The the I best. know this is so much fun. What advice would you give to folks that are struggling in any sense of the word and i mean this in that they're just entering in the struggle or they're just becoming cognizant of the struggle that they're in they've just finally hit that moment where they're like wait what Shit does not sorry does not <laughs> need to
1: be this hard I'm struggling, this or I is need help. This way bigger than I thought. It. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say your first step is to find people that understand and won't judge you, and will sit with you in it. And um, I always think that there's like a there's like a scale from formal relationship to like informal, and I think a therapist is one of the most formal relationships yes. that you can have because you pay them to sit with you every hour. Like every hour you sit with them, you're kind of, our job is to sit with you and your pain, wherever you're at with it and not try to push you further than it's time to go and care about you unconditionally. And you can never say anything that's going to make me not want to meet with you and that kind of stuff, you know, and, but you paid me to do that. But so. the
0: secret on that and what you're paying for though, is that you understand how to guide people. You understand what is happening here versus here. Totally. And you can't. When you're dealing with trauma, when you're dealing with abuse, when you're dealing with betrayal, when you're deal, when someone is sitting in an emotion and they're like, I don't know how I get up. Yeah. I'm. I. I cannot fathom taking another breath
1: and trying again. That is formality is needed. Totally needed, and it's you know it's a there's a privileged part to it too because you want to have you have to have the financial resources to it, mm-hmm. but you can always find a therapist in your insurance. So that is one kind of road That's that's I think one of the most formal ways, besides people living in hospitals and stuff like that's one of the most formal ways, and it's a beautiful thing. I'm I mean I'm very pro therapy for everybody. Everyone yes. I know needs a therapist. Every therapist I know needs a therapist. It's a great thing. In addition, there's, like, more informal ways to do it, too. So if you can find friends... Ideally, you'd have friends and family that understand you, that don't judge you, that don't want you to move faster than you need to. And most people have one or two of those people that understand them in that way. I don't know about most people, but ideally, you'd have one or two people. That's the best-case scenario that understand you in that way. there's
0: also groups? Yeah. Support groups? There's
1: therapy groups, so you still pay, but it's less, and you're developing relationships with other people, too. There's, um, like... 12-step groups in the Christian community. We have a program called Celebrate Recovery. Mm-hmm. It's a 12-step group. And you, but anybody, everybody goes. Like we kind of are under the understanding that everybody needs this kind of ministry. And you're moving through what we would call like a discipleship process or what we would call like a character development process that teaches you both discipline and comfort mm-hmm. and like genuine connection and relationships with no judgment. And so 12-step programs do that in a beautiful way. Um, there's also like NAMI support groups. Like NAMI is a National Association for Mental Illness. There's always wow. free support groups that you can go to if your family members are mentally ill or if you deal with like struggle with can mental I illness. I get links can on those? To to
0: get yeah
1: yeah I'll give okay, you good. I'll give you all those resources all of those resources okay yeah um, and then there's like there's ways to do like informal meetups too. Like even I learned from a client that Bumble, the dating app, has a friend app too, where you can meet friends and swipe left or swipe. I just like that. Why not? Go on blind dates with friends? Do it. Why not? Right? Um, so it's hard when you're vulnerable and you're hurting to meet new people. Mm-hmm. And that's where the more formal support can help. Right. And when you're going through something like, a panic, like panic attacks or like severe depression or suicidal thoughts, that kind of stuff, the more formal support is good because we will help you to keep yourself safe.
0: Well, what do you say to people that have not come to that realization, and they are still, but they are struggling? Like they, the stuff. They're resentful. They're angry. Um, they're hurting. Yeah. They are hurting, but they're not quite ready to take that to take that step. Do but you have any advice? The for official
1: them? formal step. Um, I would say that you deserve somebody that's going to comfort you. And bring you hope Mm. and so you reach out but not everyone's gonna meet that need or bring you the hope or bring you the comfort Mm
0: -hmm. and so
1: instead of getting your heart broken and kind of it reinforcing your need to like sit in your stuff right you keep reaching out to someone else and someone else and someone else
0: so if you do nothing else reach out
1: yeah and know that like they're like for me I'm never evaluating if someone that calls me needs me enough that makes sense. No, I take everybody that wants to come into therapy. I meet with mm. any if someone wants if, if someone's doing great but they want therapy to be a regular part of their life and they can afford it and it's all good and they want to keep meeting with me, I'll meet with them forever. It's my duty to tell you like okay, you don't qualify for therapy anymore. You're doing really good, right? So I don't know if you need me. Do you think you still want to come? They say yes, then come.
0: You that's know? pretty nice of you. Yeah, not just keep taking the money.
1: Oh yeah, no, no, no. That's, that's totally right. unethical. But how many
0: times have you heard? this is probably not normal, or this is crazy, or you know what,
1: I shouldn't even be here.
0: Yeah. Do you hear that more totally. often than not?
1: Totally. Oh. And everyone's nervous before they call,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: everyone's nervous before they come in.
0: And it is it because that they're just, we're not used to non-judgmental spaces? Yes and it takes a hot minute to kind of get used to that
1: and i think you assume like the word crazy is a big thing in people's heads and so i think you assume if you're going the therapist is going to call you crazy or say that you're crazy or Or confirm that
0: your belief that you are
1: right and crazy
0: is not a real thing you're like i do not have time to be admitted right now right
1: (laughs) i do not have time but even (laughs) like crazy is a derogatory term it's a bad it's not a real thing like Somebody that comes to see me, if they're panicking... That's not crazy. That's no. That's If they feel dis... So a symptom of panic or high anxiety is like dissociation, like disconnection from your body where you feel like you're... That's why I asked you, do you feel like you're floating disconnected from your body when I was analyzing? You, like... <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> but like you feel... Okay. So that is... A, that makes you go crazy. Like I'm dis, discon- I feel disconnected from my body. I I don't... I can't... I'm, I feel like I'm not in my skin. I feel like I'm not... Okay. But that's actually a functional symptom that you learned when you were young to help you when something's so overwhelming that you don't know what to do. Yeah. Right? So, like, that's, there's nothing crazy about that, even though it feels crazy. And it feels, like, call it crazy. It's not. So, like, crazy is not actually a thing. Someone that has, you know, we, we might consider someone with, like, schizophrenia, which is a specific diagnosis mm-hmm. with a specific, like, um, chemical imbalance. Mm-hmm. Somebody thinks that, like, that, or, like, you know, everything that the movies call is crazy, like, um, or, like, somebody with uh, multiple personalities, which is really dissociative Mm -hmm. identity disorder, like, you, you, somebody would call that, like, as crazy as it gets, and you go, no, that's not crazy, that's a, that's a result of trauma. Like, schizophrenia is, like, a genetic thing and trauma. Like, all of that connects to something that makes sense in the world.
0: Crazy does not exist. Crazy
1: does not exist. Now, we can feel... That this person is struggling so much that they're overwhelming me, and so I have to go kind of calm myself down because I'm feeling overwhelmed in this relationship before I have to set boundaries and I can't be as close to this person and maybe I can't trust them. Mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean that person's crazy. It means they're struggling in a way that's interfering with their so, ability to connect.
0: So crazy is not a state of mind. It's no. an emotion. Yeah.
1: so one thing that we've learned today.
0: I that feel feelings are not
1: your identity. Yes. <laughs> that's what we learn.
0: Which means if you feel crazy, that is not your identity. No, it's just That's just feeling. what you're
1: feeling. Yeah. And crazy is not a, it does not exist. I love it. I love
0: that too. Oh my goodness. <laughs> okay, we're gonna come to a close. Um, what I wanted to close with, and um, that what I was telling you before I hit go live, that video that I'm recording, is um, because I'm a coach consultant, mm-hmm. and a story broke uh, on. Friday about some leaked documents and materials on a big name speaker
1: <clears throat> mm.
0: and some of his uh, practices.
1: Uh, uh, I um, saw an article on this but didn't read it. Now i got to read it. I read it in full uh-huh. and it
0: prompted me to do a video about my core beliefs and foundational operation of what a coach is. And you said a couple of things that, um, that resonated so very much in that And the video will be posted. It will be seven minutes after this. Um, Coaches have a purpose in your life um, to help you with goal completion, um, to help you push away some doubt and insecurities to complete those goals and even allow you the space to dream in that. But it does not replace licensed therapy at any point. It does not, it cannot, it will not ever replace um, what licensed therapy will do for a person. And it should never. And if you are struggling people, folks out there in the world, if you are struggling, if you, if it was hard to um, look at your partner because something happened, if it was difficult for you to feel the ground underneath your feet because Mm -hmm. you feel so... you you feel so shaken and unstable and insecure and wherever you are at this point seek out those therapeutic resources from licensed professionals that will tell you crazy doesn't exist (laughs) and you're okay to feel this way Mm -hmm. and this is what is physiologically happening to you this is what's psychologically is happening to you, and it's all within the normal realm of things. Mm-hmm. And there's, you can trust them reason. because they went through 3,000 years of school. Oh, my goodness. To get to that. So
1: much training. Yeah, no, I think that that's really important to know because coaching is blowing up, I think, as a field. And and, and, and there's a lot of people, I've, I've been thinking about this, I was actually praying about this earlier really this week, like there's a lot of people that want to help people and feel like they have a skill in helping, but for some reason they're not able or willing or... Mm -hmm. Like, don't have the time, or don't, or are single moms, you know, or have the ability to go through all this training, all this grad school to do their work. And I think that there is a place for people that want to help.
0: There is. There's there's never a wrong place to want to help, but make sure that you're helping to
1: the benefit of the person that you are trying to help. Yeah, for us, we we consider, so we're taught legally and ethically to consider our scope of competence and our scope of practice. So for me, like, I would never give someone advice on what, psych- like, psych- um, psychiatric medications to take. Because I'm not a doctor. I have a master's degree. And what would you do? I would talk to them about their side effects and tell them, go see your doctor. <laughs> do you have a good psychiatrist? Let's look up some psychiatrists. Let's find you, you some names. You would work just with them to find them. I would help them find a psychiatrist. I would talk through them. I would help them process the emotions that come up from having to go. I would help them fire their psychiatrist if they weren't good. All that I would talk them through the side effects and say, "Okay, write down this list. Let's talk through your feelings. Write down your side effects. Now go Mm -hmm. take that to your doctor, and make sure you tell them this and this because that's what you told me." And have the doctor call me if they need to. But
0: and just like it's not my job. And just like um, anything in our lives, Mm -hmm. to not every uh, therapist or psychiatrist is going to fit be a good you fit. yes it still has to be a good fit and it's not yes. necessarily that one person is a certain belief system or it, and i'm sure you have patients that aren't even faith-based. that aren't even faith-based
1: oh yeah it's most just of my it, job before wasn't faith-based but yeah.
0: but you have a, a persona and a personality that just speaks to people
1: yeah i think it fits. i think because i grew up in church too I, I like part of this weird subculture that weird subculture people that are in my weird subculture come to me (laughs) you know what I mean that's part of it too and marketing like I market directly to people yeah but oh no we're licensed to work with anyone and I would never talk faith with people that don't bring that into the room they always get to bring it into the room it's never something that I I never go can I pray for you when you're not faith-based that would be very unethical (laughs) so there's never like a preaching Mm. you know um yeah, no, I think staying in your lane is a good thing. Knowing what your training is. I love that. Yeah.
0: Stay in your lane. Yeah. And then educate yourself on when you have to carpool in another lane. Educate the best way. Educate yourself on the best way to carpool and collaborate
1: yep. to the greater good. And consult. And consult. I think coaches need a good list of therapists that they trust. That Absolutely. They can refer to. And I think knowing how to... Help people find therapists at any income level is really important. There are therapists at every income level. So I may not be at everyone's income level personally, but there is going to be somebody that's a good fit for you that is at your income level. That's really important.
0: You're in Someone my network now. Okay. Um, okay, so we're going to come to a close. If you, like always in all the interviews, if you have any questions that come up or any comments, you can post them here and the event page, or you can direct message me, and I can get them to Suzette. Mm-hmm. Um, again, all of her links, if you are just moved right now to book a session with her to find out more about her, um, then follow those links to her website. Also, check out her podcast, because I have to, she's my neighbor, <laughs> um, so I get to hear her voice if ever I
1: knock on all her door. the time through the walls?
0: No, can't uh, hear anything. Uh, that's walls, good. but um but listening to your podcast, she just has such a pleasing voice. Like you have such a, a pleasing voice. Please saver. It is. It's so like calming and I'm like,
1: I could just listen to whatever she has to say. <laughs> and it's a little rambly, and that's good. I that's it's, what I like it. <laughs> it's me and a pastor, a local pastor in Long mm-hmm. Beach, and we're talking we talk through ways that like faith and psychology intersect.
0: I've been touting on that. Um that Partnership that make up because I think it's just such an interesting. Even though you're a faith-based psychologist, mm-hmm. just to have like, like you said at the beginning, not a lot of people put these two together. Yeah, you're breaking. You're breaking. Is it stigma?
1: I yeah, I think stigma starting to be broken in our field That's for sure. Good. I can't say I'm a I'm a trailblazer, but I do think that I see it in a different way. But than, you're on the trail. I am on, girl, I'm on the trail. And hopefully it's not a freeway yet, because it's nice to be on. Just a nice, well-worn path where smart people are ahead of you that you're following, but you also have people behind you that you can teach.
0: Isn't that lovely? It is. <laughs> okay, so I could stay here forever. But um,
1: we're going to go ahead and come to a close. Is there anything you'd like to add? Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, everybody, for paying attention, for hanging with us. For Has it been an hour It's long? been... <laughs> Yeah, it has been an hour and a half. So thanks for hanging this long. I yeah. loved it. Thanks All for right. having me, Jacqueline.
0: Thank you. All right, you guys can catch this on replay. It'll be in the events and, of course, on the Ambry page, and I will share it to my personal page if you're on there. Also, um, a video that's going to speak a lot to this, um, which I think will be a great um, parallel on the <clears throat> on the difference between coaching and therapy and uh Stay tuned, more to come to you from Anbry. All right, thanks for joining us this Sunday. Thanks, everybody. Bye.